Well, good morning. I'm curious how these videos are hitting you each week. I'm curious how this video hits you. Did Jesus struggle financially? Is that true? Now, I happen to agree with the video. I think he did, but I don't mind telling you, just saying that out loud kind of messes with me a little bit. And I don't know if it messes with you too, but if it does, that's okay. Sometimes it's all right to be messed with. There's a question that I like to ask myself, and from time to time, I like to ask it of others as well. So I'm going to ask you right now. You guys want to know what it is? Here it is. If you're wrong, do you want to know? And we can apply this to anything. If you're wrong, do you want to know? Now, if I say yes, I do want to know. The only thing I have to lose is my ego. But what I have to gain is a better relationship with reality. Now, if we were to say, well, no, I don't want to know, well, the only thing that we have to gain is our ego, but what we lose is our relationship with reality. I don't know of anybody who enjoys being corrected. Nobody likes that. And yet we should not despise being corrected so much that we ignore truth and break up with reality. And if we begin to to think about it in that way, as crazy as it may sound, being corrected can actually be a joy. Every time that we learn something new, every time that we find out, oh my goodness, I was mistaken, I believe the wrong thing. Every time that we say, I was wrong and now I understand, that is an awesome thing because it gives us the opportunity to better our relationship with reality. Do you agree? So with eyes wide open, this is what we want to do. We want to survey a few quick facts about the life of Jesus. Jesus was born into a low-income family. His first nursery was where they fed animals. Now, I imagine some of you, when your kids were little, you had pictures of animals in their nursery, but you didn't actually feed animals in their nursery. Low-income, blue-collar workers crowded the delivery room when Jesus was born. The first people to show up and worship and adore and celebrate Jesus, they were shepherds, they were the extreme low end of the income earners, blue collar, agricultural people. And if you grew up around a farm, or if you grew up working on a farm, you're going to understand exactly what I say next. They smelled like a hard day's work. And if you don't know what a hard day's work smells like for them, it smelled like sweat and dirt and sheep. I'm curious, any nurses in the room, are you letting that crowd in the room with mom and new baby? The primary income earner in his home died early. We're talking about Joseph, the husband of Mary, Jesus' stepfather. And the last time that he's mentioned in the Gospels is when Jesus is 12 years old. We don't know if Joseph died when Jesus was a teenager. We don't know if he died when Jesus was in his 20s. But when Joseph did die, and he died probably when Jesus was at a younger age, it would have put an incredible financial hardship on the family because all of his income potential was taken away. And you know there was no life insurance back then. There was no Aflac. Jesus relied on crowdfunding to cover all the costs of his travel and ministry work. Did you know that? I want to highlight a verse that Luke wrote down for us. In chapter 8, verse 3, he says, Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, that's a fun name, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna and many others, these women were helping to support them out of their own means. 
Just like our church is 100% funded and our ministry is 100% funded by your financial gifts, Jesus' life and ministry was 100% crowd-funded. It was because of people gave out of their own pockets and the only, we don't know who all the people were who funded Jesus, but the only ones who were ever named were some of these women. Another quick fact about Jesus, he wasn't homeless, but he didn't exactly have a home. We want to turn to something that Matthew recorded that he heard Jesus say in an exchange one day. Jesus replied to some guys, he said, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. And the context for Jesus saying that, there were some guys, they wanted to follow Jesus, they wanted to travel with him, they wanted to do work with him, but they weren't willing to pay the cost, to count the cost, to make the sacrifices that came with that. So Jesus said this and response. And I think that there's quite a bit of latitude to debate how serious, or not how serious, but how literally we should take these words. But what is crystal clear is Jesus is saying to these guys, if you follow me, you're going to have less. If you follow me, you're going to have less financial security. And the words of Jesus to those guys, and probably to us, is that if we find our significance, if we find our comfort, if we find our security and the amount of things that we're able to acquire for ourselves, it is always going to feel like we have less when we choose to follow him. Now, this is probably a point where we need to acknowledge attention. Jesus was fully human, but he was also fully God. And all of our imaginations together, collectively, we are not able to come close to comprehending just how powerful he is, how incredibly wealthy he is as the God of the universe. Yes, there were shepherds who were there, lowly shepherds at Jesus' birth, but there were also an army of angels too, right? And it would just be wrong of us. We would be misguided, we'd be wrongheaded to think of Jesus as destitute. He was not. When he was hanging at the cross, on the cross, Roman soldiers gambled over who got to take his clothes home. And I don't think that Jesus wore Jewish Gucci, but his clothes were nice. And yet he was humble, and he lived in humble circumstances. Incomprehensibly powerful and rich beyond description. And yet he chose a meager life. And all of his human life, he navigated poverty just like 99% of the human population at that time in history. And so I want to invite you to think about this with me for a second. What made Jesus extraordinary, one of the things that made Jesus extraordinary was that he was so ordinary. Fully God, fully human, he navigated financial struggles too. Jesus probably knew what it was like to have too much month at the end of the money. Jesus knew what it was like to have less than what he needed. And yet, he never responded with fear, worry, jealousy, bitterness, or any other kind of sin. I want to return to a verse that we read week one of this series. We're going to turn to the writer of Hebrews and how he described Jesus. And he described Jesus as this way as our high priest. He said, for we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, 
yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with, what's this word? Confidence. Because we have a high priest, we have a Savior who empathizes with us. And based on all of that and his sinlessness, we can approach the throne room of God in prayer with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That is exactly right. So the question is, why do we spend time pressing into this? Why do we spend time talking about that? And before I answer that question, I need you to answer a question for me. Does anyone in here know what it's like to be reduced down to one feature or one fact about you as though that is something that defines who you are. Does anybody know what that's like? And sometimes being reduced down to like just one thing about you, that could be the reason that somebody rejects you. It could also be the reason that someone accepts you. It works both ways. Does anyone know what it's like to be reduced to your grade point average or to your intelligence level? Does anybody know what it's like to be reduced to your net worth? Does anybody know what it's like to be reduced to your skin color? Does anybody know what it's like to be reduced to your body type or level of sexual attractiveness? Does anybody know what it's like to be reduced to your age? Does anybody know what it's like to be reduced to your gender? Does anybody know what it's like to be reduced to your vote? or to a viewpoint that you have. I'm curious, does anybody know? Does anybody in here know what it's like to be reduced down to a decision that you regret and you would give anything to be able to go back in time and do it differently? Are you with me? I don't know if you've met people, but this is how they operate. Have you met people? And I bet a lot of us, maybe all of us could say, Rick, I've got an experience like that. I know what it's like to be reduced down to one feature, one fact, or a handful of facts about me as though that defined everything about me. And it is frustrating. It is infuriating when that becomes a license to reject us or mistreat us. But even when we're reduced down to one thing about us and that becomes the reason that people accept us, that is demeaning too. Because there is a desire inside of every human heart to be seen and to be known and to be understood. And we have a word for that. The word for that is intimacy. The height of intimacy is to be fully known, to be fully understood, and then to be fully and truly accepted. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It is an awesome thing. But we also described why it is so scary. Because what happens if you truly know me? And what happens if you truly understand me? And then based on that, you decide to reject me. That is a kind of pain that I don't know if any of us truly know how to live with. And so it becomes understandable that there are moments in life where we shrink back. And there are moments in life where we hold back. Because after all, if somebody doesn't truly know me, they can't truly reject me. Anybody ever bought a ticket to ride that crazy train? So let's bring it all together. 
Jesus knows everything there is to know about you and all of your lived experience. Jesus understands everything there is to understand about you and all of your lived experience. There is no part of you and your story that he has ignored. Good and bad. He knows it all. And he understands it all. He gets it. And he gets us. And to demonstrate just how much he accepts us. I mean, go all the way, leave no room for doubt, absolute, complete, full acceptance. Jesus stepped into all of human experience with us. If Jesus had a best friend, I think it was a guy named John. John was one of Jesus' closest disciples. He went on to be an apostle. He wrote a biography of Jesus' life. We know it as the Gospel of John. He wrote down for us all the important things we need to know about Jesus, where he went, what he did, who he interacted with, how he interacted with people, all the really important things that Jesus had to say. Now, John didn't write it all down. At the end of his gospel, he tells us that there were not enough books in the world to contain everything that Jesus did, everything that Jesus taught, all that he saw and observed in Jesus. So when we read John, we know that John is writing down the most important stuff, the stuff we got to get. And anything we read in the Gospel of John is important. It is tippy-top importance. And this is one of the things that John wrote down for us. The Word, and this is Jesus, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Now, these words that I highlighted here, they come from a Greek verb. And it quite literally means that Jesus pitched his tent with us. And I don't know if anyone in here likes camping, and we might actually naturally think of camping, but there's a more profound imagery that John is actually trying to get us to understand. we got to go back to Old Testament times. In Old Testament times, the, the children of Israel, the people of Israel, they had been freed from slavery in Egypt. They're leaving Egypt, and they are on their way to a country of their own. But before they arrive, they wander through the desert for a long, long time. And they knew that God was with them. Do you remember how? Does anyone know how they knew that God was with them? During the day, there was a great pillar of smoke. And at night, there was this pillar of fire. I wish I could have seen it. I would love to know what that was like. But somewhere along the way, they made an elaborate tent. Do you know what that tent was called? It was called a tabernacle. And they knew that God was present with them because this pillar of smoke would come down and rest on the tabernacle and fill it completely. I found this picture that might represent it, and I chose this picture because it reminds me of flannel graphs. Do you remember? Do you guys remember the old flannel graphs? Maybe it looks something like that. When John said Jesus pitched his tent among us, What John was saying is that Jesus tabernacled with us. What John was saying is that what we have to get is that God in Jesus literally lived with us, lived like us, as one of us. 
Jesus wasn't a tourist in the human experience. He was a full-time resident. He did not live above the fray. He stepped into our struggles. And you know what? He struggled too. He stepped into our weaknesses. And you know what? He experienced real weakness too. In the fourth century, there was a man named Gregory of Nyssa. He was a theologian and he was a bishop, which meant he was a pastor leading other pastors. And this is what he said about what we're talking about right now. God can enter into human weakness without ceasing to rule the world. Isn't that good? Isn't that encouraging that God can enter into human weakness without ceasing to rule the world? Do you know what that means? That God is never too preoccupied and he is never too busy with the important stuff to step into your stuff. I hope that you're encouraged by this. How many of you were here for our first Peter series, even if you were just here for one week? You guys remember our first Peter series? All right. In our first Peter series, you probably remember that Peter was passing on the true grace of God to a collection of churches in Asia Minor, and he was telling them to hold fast and to stand firm in it. Where do you think Gregory of Nyssa grew up and went to church? One of those churches that Peter wrote his letter to. So you know what that means? That means right now, if you were encouraged by this, we are being encouraged by a man who grew up in a church that decided we're going to accept the true grace of God, we're going to hold fast to it, we're going to stand firm in it, even in times in which we struggle. Isn't that an amazing thing? Do you know what that means? I don't know what it is that's got you on the struggle bus today. I don't know what difficulty you're carrying, what burden you're carrying, what hardship you are walking through, but let me tell you what you don't know. You cannot predict and you cannot even begin to imagine when you choose to hold fast and stand firm and the true grace of God, even when life is hard, you cannot predict how God is going to use that in your life to encourage others beyond your ability to imagine. And so today, let me say this, you are not, you are not being invited to dig deep and white knuckle your way through whatever's tough. You're not being invited to fake it till you make it. As a matter of fact, followers of Jesus should never use that expression. That is not the gospel of life. We are not faking it till we make it. What we are inviting to do, invited to do, what you are invited to do, is to trust Jesus and to trust the way of Jesus. And so I'm going to ask it super direct. When the road is hard, will you follow him and trust his way, even when it's hard, or will you look for the exit lane? Even when we struggle, will we stay close to Jesus and will we follow his way or will we turn aside to something else? And for us to really wrap our minds around that, I need you to think about three words. We gotta talk about three words together. These three words are dependence, independence, and interdependence. And what I wanna ask you, is which of these words do you think should be used to describe a maturing, fully devoted follower of Jesus? Are there any words here that should not be used to describe a mature, fully devoted follower of Jesus? What are you aiming at with your life? If any of you are raising tiny humans, which, which of these do you want them to aim at in life? Is anyone paying for any kid in college or beyond? 
Which one of these are you wanting them to hit in life? I don't know about you guys, when we were raising our kids, my kids did not come with the Saturday morning gene. And by that, I mean they did not like to sleep in on Saturday morning. How about your kids? And so we celebrated when our daughter Caroline was big enough to pour her own cereal. And so we bought tiny bowls and tiny cereal boxes and the smallest jug of milk, and we put everything on the lowest shelf, and we said, we don't care if you spill. We let her get up on Saturday morning and pour her own cereal. We just wanted a few extra minutes of sleep. We celebrated independence. Anybody else? Now, when we start off in life, we start off in life fully dependent on other people. And maybe in the final chapter of our life, we end fully dependent on other people. But I don't think anybody says being dependent is what we're aiming for. And yet, I don't think independence is necessarily what we should be aiming for either. I want to invite you to think about Jesus in this way. Jesus modeled dependence on the Father and interdependence with others. Total dependence on the Father and true interdependence with others. Think about it like this. Think about all the ways that Jesus modeled dependence on the Father. Number one, he was devoted to prayer. He said things like, I only do what I see my Father doing. At the end of his time in the wilderness, we spent 40 days fasting and devoted to prayer. At the end, angels had to come and attend to him. Jesus did not model rugged individualism and self-reliance. When Jesus was faced with temptation, what did he do? He quoted scripture. He turned to scripture. The night that Jesus was arrested, before that happened, he was in a garden. He was praying and he said, God, he said, Father, I, I surrender to your will. That's what I want. And in the final moments of the cross, he entrusted his spirit to the hands of the Father. He, he modeled what it meant to truly rely on and depend on his heavenly Father. But Jesus also was an example of intentional interdependence with others. We've already seen Jesus relied on other people to pay for his ministry endeavors. Jesus relied on and depended on his disciples to fulfill tasks and to solve problems and to do work of the ministry. There were times that Jesus would send out large numbers of teams of two out to surrounding villages and towns to prepare them for the ministry that was going to happen when Jesus arrived. And maybe the greatest example is the Great Commission where Jesus said to his disciples, and that includes us, that we are the ones who are entrusted with the greatest mission to spread the message of the gospel. I want to challenge you, when you read the Gospels, when you do your Bible study, look for ways that Jesus modeled complete dependence on the Father and intentional interdependence with others. And the highs and lows, on the easy days and the struggling days, Jesus' life looks like this, complete dependence on the Father and intentional interdependence with others. And what we don't see is independence. And to understand interdependence, this does not mean that we let other people do for us the things that we should do for ourselves. Being interdependent means that we have to be dependable. It means we have to be mature. We have to be reliable. And it recognizes that there are times that others are going to rely on me and they're going to lean on me and they're going to depend on me. And there are going to be times that I rely on and depend on others. And that is good because that is part of God's intentional design for humanity for us to be completely reliant upon him and to be interdependent with others. 
There was a time that Jesus was trying to teach his disciples how to pray. So he gave them a model prayer. And I want to look at one line from that model prayer. Jesus said this, just that one line, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I think this one line from this prayer can be summarized. Total dependence on the Father, interdependence with others. He says, give us today our daily bread. I think Jesus is referring back to the time that they were wandering through the wilderness and miraculously each day God provided manna for the people. And if you want to know what manna means, it literally means what is it? I don't know what it was, but some sort of bread-like substance. And Jesus is saying, you've got to be totally reliant on your heavenly father. He is not your co-pilot. You are totally reliant on him. We rely on him for our life and everything that we need. But one of the reasons that we are told to forgive and to cancel debts is because the good news of the gospel is constantly pushing us to enmesh our lives with each other and into messy community with one another. Is that hard? Is that hard sometimes? I think it is. And there's probably lots of reasons why that's hard for us. But one of the reasons, one of the reasons that's hard for us is we at making money. I want to invite you to write this down. Affluence deceives us into aiming for independence. Affluence deceives us into aiming for independence. Fifteen years ago, I came across a study that was done into the behaviors between drivers and pedestrians in a city environment. And this is what they discovered. The more expensive the car was, the less likely it was that the driver would be courteous to pedestrians. The cheaper the car was, the more likely it was that the driver would be courteous to pedestrians. Now, the takeaway isn't that poor people are nice and rich people are jerks. The takeaway seemed to be that the poorer you are, just by design of life, you are more interdependent with others. And that requires empathy, which was expressed through courtesy. The wealthier you are, the easier it is to live independently which allows things like empathy to atrophy. And I don't know who came up with it. I don't know how it happened. I'm not smart enough to figure it out, but it just seems like somewhere along the way, as a culture, as a people, as a nation, we elevated independence as the goal, as the thing that we should be aiming for. And I want to give you an ugly expression of it. This was going around social media uh, this week. Somebody posted this. It got a lot of traction. The quickest way to becoming a high-value man. Do not get married. Avoid family creation. Vasectomy in your 20s. Lift consistently. Eliminate all sedations. Learn game and networking. Play to your strengths and build wealth. Resist easing up on your focus. And the person who posted this and all the people who were fans of it, this is codifying independence. This is what happens when that becomes the highest value of life. And for people who are thinking, well, that's just kind of one example. That doesn't really describe our society. That might be right. I want to introduce you to Derek Thomas. If you don't know who he is, he's a writer for The Atlantic. And this week, on May 3rd, he reported this. New report from the U.S. Surgeon General. The U.S. is in a profound loneliness crisis. Every measure of population-wide friendship companionship and social fitness is worse than it was 20 years ago. Now clearly, probably the impact of COVID affected that. But I think this is the natural destination of a society 
that elevates independence as the bullseye. And if we are following Jesus, we should probably end up at a different destination than following our culture. One day, one of Jesus' disciples came to him and was complaining, and I don't think he was throwing a tantrum. I think it was just raw, vulnerable, Jesus, this is hard. And he said to Jesus, some of us have given up a lot, but we've lost a lot to follow you, and it hurts. And this is part of Jesus' response. Jesus says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit, inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. And what I hear Jesus saying is, you're right, what you've lost is real and it hurts. But what I'm giving you in exchange is not more stuff. It's better relationships. It's a new family and it's a deep and abiding and enduring community of faith of people who can be with you and you who you can be with even on the hard days. What if Jesus' response to our struggles is not to resolve them, but to give us people who we can be with and who can be with us when we are walking a hard road? Talking about this passage, uh, I heard a guy named Greg Coles. He's a senior research fellow at something called the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. Just, I mean, this man loves the Lord, and, and, and I and a few of our pastors got to hear him speak this week. He said this, we are ourselves most embodying the image of God when we embed ourselves in community. And what does that look like? It means we open up our homes to each other. We open up our spare bedrooms to each other. We open up our dinner tables to each other. We open up our wallets for each other. We open up our very lives to each other. Jesus did not give us a way to end our struggles. He gave us a way to be with him and each other in our struggles. And that's better. That's good news. I bet all of us could tell stories of struggling. I bet, I bet a lot of us, maybe all of us, could tell stories of financial struggles. I remember times when I was a teenager that my parents stressed out over me using two paper towel sheets instead of one. There were times in my life we didn't have paper towel money. I don't know, you might have had paper towel money in your house. I could tell you a story about 10 years ago where I was convinced Heather and I were going to have to file for bankruptcy. The short version of the story is we owned a house in California. We had an opportunity to do ministry in Utah. We, th we thought God was calling us to do that. And because of the ongoing effects of the 2008 housing crash, we could not sell our house, so we had to rent it, and we did. And we did all the things that we thought we could do were wise. We got wise advice, and we ended up renting it to somebody who took advantage of us, and through very intentional, calculated strategy that he employed, put us in a very difficult financial position. We ended up losing all of our savings and my retirement to get out of that devastating entanglement. How do we make it through? I learned this. Heather and I learned this, what it meant to just be completely dependent on God. Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night from a dead sleep praying about financial stress? I have. 
I don't know if that makes me more trusting or less trusting, but I know what that's like. And we also learned what it meant to be interdependent with our family and our church family who chose to step into that mess with us and help us in a variety of tangible ways. And I want to just share that from my heart with you, but I also share it with a little bit of hesitance. One of my God-given responsibilities as a pastor is to be protective. That means that it's my job to spot threats and dangers out on the horizon. And one of the threats and one of the dangers out on the horizon is the belief that if I follow Jesus, eventually he's going to make it all okay and all the problems and all the struggles just evaporate. There's this idea out there that if we click into the right combination of faith and obedience, it just all, it's all becomes rainbows and sunshine. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that we are given a way to be with Jesus and he is with us and we can be with each other even in the midst of hardship. And I'm grateful that I live in this country. I love this country. There is no better country on the planet as far as I'm concerned to have to start over again financially. But we would be gravely mistaken if we confused American economic prosperity and potential for the stuff of the gospel. Jesus, didn't end, Jesus did not give us a way to end our struggles. He gave us a way to be with him and each other in our struggles. And the way that Jesus was with us, we get to be that way with each other. The way that Jesus served us, we get to do that for each other. And the way that Jesus loved us, we get to love each other.